The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. Sticky Beak is a homegrown online rapid consumer testing tool that is helping companies and NGOs all over the world understand their customers and test products and ideas using mediums and approaches that people like to use, like engaging text-style messaging and making research enjoyable. Sticky Beak comes from a bunch of experts in marketing, research and comms, like CEO Anna Henwood. Anna's career has taken her from managing the 100% Pure brand to helping Les Mills International pivot its approach through the pandemic. And to chat the journey, leadership, and what's next, Anna Henwood joins us now. Tanakwe. Kia ora, Simon. Thanks for having me. Hey, so what does a platform like 100% Pure New Zealand that everyone will kind of, kind of, kind of know about? Um, what does that allow for? a big brand like a country uh, to be able to have a big message at the top and then kind of regional and individualised messages underneath it. That was what, almost what we were playing with at the time that I came in. And there's always, or there, it's it's changed now with the New Zealand Story Group, which is amazing. But at the time there was a sort of tension that the 100% Pure brand was New Zealand's brand, but it was the brand to come to New Zealand as a holiday destination. So you got a bit of push-pull from education or trade and other areas in terms of this brand needing to do everything. But we were really focused on it doing the job of encouraging people to come to New Zealand as a, as a holiday destination. And the metrics we were chasing were, were preference. So we knew there was this huge market that had New Zealand in their top five next destination, and we were chasing for it to be the next one or two versus that maybe someday, say less. So... The platform allowed a really broad range of marketing messages. So, for example, in Germany, we, we know they loved nature, getting into the environment. Um, so you'd really kind of pull in that in terms of messaging and visuals. Whereas our Asian markets are more interested in making sure there's urban um, opportunities and restaurants and shopping, as well as those kind of, um, you know, more nature-based activities that New Zealand's known for. So getting the combinations right and, and having that message really resonate with each of those markets was something that was a real focus at that time, all the way down to the backpacking market, the golf market, and getting into special interests as well. And super based on research, right, to actually work out what does this group of people care about and what do they want to see? I remember um, years ago when I was working um, with an agency, we were doing some work with Tourism New Zealand and there'd been some research around uh, the traditional images you see in your head, right, when you hear about 100% pure New Zealand of like a big white um, snow-capped mountain that was completely empty with a lovely thing on the top. And it hadn't tested well in China. Totally. That's exactly what would happen. It would be, we love the way New Zealand looks. It's beautiful, but 
am, am I going to be bored there? What can I do? Is it going to take me 14 hours to drive from one thing to the next? And the reality is, you know, you drive for two hours in New Zealand and you're seeing what could be five different states in America or, or countries in Europe, you know, in terms of its diversity of landscape and, and activities. So, you know, very much it was about putting people literally into the picture. It was putting those activities in, showing that accessibility, um, you know, all the fun things that there there is to do in New Zealand as part of that. And you're totally right. Research is such a strong foundation of that. And um, it was TNS at the time. I don't think TNS is TNS anymore. But um, we'd have these quarterly um, insights that would come in. They'd be for all of the key markets, you know, you'd really understand how that sentiment might be shifting or, or or be kind of unique to that market. But the beautiful thing at the time when I was there too is all the digital data coming in at the same time and, you know, kind of looking at that in terms of, okay, well, how does that match against what they're looking at on, on NewZealand.com and what are we seeing in terms of the social media interaction around content? Um, and, you know, been kind of blend those worlds together in terms of what are people saying and what are they doing and, and how does that work together to help us create better marketing messages and campaigns? Yeah, I think I think the solution that we did, like you say, was put some people in the picture. <laughs> what they did was actually go out and reshoot it with a whole lot of people in brightly coloured jackets all over it as the, the, the feedback was that emptiness meant that it couldn't be any good and being all white signified death. <laughs> <laughs> Not great for your hero images. Not great. And like, it's such a challenge as well, hey, because, you know, um, we love to think that the world thinks about us a lot and, you know, New Zealand's so pure and lovely and stuff. But actually, like you say, you know, 14 hours to get somewhere, that plane ride mm-hmm. from anywhere to New Zealand or the second plane ride in many instances, because we're used to having to do it, it doesn't bother us so much. But it is such a barrier overseas. Especially when domestic travel in the US is so awful. Like if you think that four-hour flight is just hell, you can't even imagine what 14 is. But 14 is nicer, right? Because you're on an Air New Zealand plane and you're direct and, and you, you know, you're getting looked after and you've got all your movies and your wine, whereas all of that is quite hard work when you're flying domestic. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's definitely a, a barrier for people. All the airline connections that the, the trade team work hard to get make a massive difference. Um, and, yeah, like I think post-COVID, it, it feels like it's picking up again in terms of getting people into all different parts of New Zealand, more flights into Christchurch, for example, you know, really helping make sure New Zealand stays a, a popular tourism destination. And that role of research, like it's one of those places where, you, you know, that and what's come after it with the New Zealand Story Group, a very real approach to understanding what people actually think of us. Um, yeah, and how how did that kind of approach to research help to shape your work as a marketer? Yeah, I I kind of stumbled into international marketing with the Tourism NZ role and absolutely fell in love with it. And I think the reason I fell in love with it is because of all that cultural difference. And, um, you know, it seems so obvious when you think about it, but you really have to think about that and and keep your finger on the pulse. But from New Zealand, it's quite tough to get that constant feedback and input around how your consumer is changing and how the market around them is changing. Um, You know, especially as I, I moved on to Les Mills International, where at one point we were in over 100 markets. And so trying to really understand that consumer and how they might differ and be the same. 
Um, research plays a huge role into that and having a agile research program that includes lots of things, that data side, the social media side, actual going out and getting quant and qual and, you know, trying to um, understand what you're doing, is it actually resonating and, and making the difference that you want it to? And just before we move off 100% pure, like it is such a magic example of how a very simple message that may not be 100% true <laughs> can really help in marketing and brand building. And how also, if you're too literal, um, you, you kind of kill the magic. And so, you know, 100% pure, I mean, that's impossible, right? Like, it's not it's not physically possible. But the concept is what people wanted to um, connect to, right? And it's kind of famous that it came out of an Australian agency and not a New Zealand agency because we couldn't kind of say it ourselves, hey? Yeah, and I think the 100% pure kind of ended up being this kind of 100% magic type mm. idea, you know, this, this beautiful place. And I was actually there when the Hobbit premiere was in Wellington and the brand role encompassed events and social media and brand. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was there when we were working on the 100% Middle Earth campaign. We brought hundreds of media down to New Zealand, showed them around, you know, had the red carpet run up into the premiere of The Hobbit. And that was, I think, probably the most exciting project that I worked on at Tourism New Zealand because you got to just bring in all those wonderful elements of our creativity around the movies, our people. Like, that's what that media program was all about. People would come down, the media would come down, they'd say, we want to see this and physically we want to see this and experience that. And then they'd write and they'd broadcast about the people uh, and the, the experiences they had and the glass of wine that they were invited to have and the probably house that they were invited to stay the night at or whatever else Kiwis um, and our hospitality brings. And yeah, that that program was phenomenal, working with Warner Brothers and, and the wider NZ Inc. community to really showcase New Zealand will be something I keep in my heart forever. Uh, I managed to do it at 28 weeks pregnant as well. So <laughs> walking down that red carpet with a very big puku uh, and very sore feet. Um, and I haven't really admitted this to many people, but I fell asleep in the premiere because <laughs> <laughs> I was so exhausted. But just a quick cat nap. It was a wonderful movie. Um, but yeah, it was a huge well, week in Wellington and, and then kind of months of planning leading into that. Yeah. And great cultural moment for the country, right? Yeah. And you mentioned Les Mills there that you went on to. And I think when we say Les Mills in New Zealand, most people go to the gyms that are local. But Les Mills International, where you are, it's one of these great international success stories that I just don't think enough New Zealanders really understand. Tell us what that business does and about the scale of it. I know. I, it's the first converse, first thing I say is I worked at Les Mills, not the gyms yes. in New Zealand. And people are like, well, what do you mean not the gyms? That's the only thing there is. I'm like, no, no, Les Mills International, it's, it's this community of 6 million people working out every week. It's 130,000 instructors. It's over 20,000 gyms that have Les Mills classes on their timetable every week. It's phenomenal um, what, what is out there around the world that unless you've lived and maybe travelled overseas and seen Body Pump on the Fitness First gym or YMCA or Golds or whatever it might be, you don't actually understand that those Les Mills programs, those classes slot into gyms all around the world. And then as well as that, the um, the app itself. So I don't know the numbers recently, but hundreds of thousands um, of people on that app working out every week uh, to Les Mills classes. It's, it's a beast of a fitness machine. 
And they have things like, like kind of Lollapalooza, you know, Coachella for fit people, like these enormous events where their uh, trainers and um, instructors come together around the world, hey? They are phenomenal. That was my first kind of wow, what am I in moment. I went to my very first Les Mills Live, is what they're called, in uh, Amsterdam. And I was lying on the floor doing a a chest press um, to Metallica (laughs) because it was a kind of retro throwback release. And I just as I looked around at the 2,000 other people around me also moving their bar at the same time, and it's just surreal. It really is, um, yeah, an experience that you can't even really describe and you have to do it to, to believe it. Uh, and those events have continued. I think the very big, the biggest one might be a tie between the recent one in London with Adidas and then one in LA that the team have just done uh, up there with Adidas as well. So these are thousands of people working out, like you said, all the trainers on the stage, sometimes groups of 30, 40 trainers leading out um, programs to people who are crying to see their favourite trainers and autographs are flying and tattoos with Les Mills all over people. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty full on. It's remarkable because, you know, um, people have probably got in their head, oh yeah, fitness thing with some classes. But this is like an IP and community company amongst the very best in the world, you know, as good as any other sports brand. Um, and that's why sports brands like Adidas, you know, partner with it to connect with these people, right? Totally. It's it's was such a smart model that Philip and Jackie came up with in the 90s in terms of licensing these programs. Like This is before SaaS, right? This is before we're all like, let's make a subscription business. They're like, let's, you know, crush the subscription world and create a really addictive, really results-driven fitness program. And then let's just keep building on that. And the first was Body Pump with Strength. Well, Jazzergetics and Body Attack was kind of the OG OG, but... Yeah, all the different programs and move with the times, hit training, you know, now this sort of stretch and sculpt and all sorts of different programs that they they offer to keep up with today's fitness goer and our needs as we sit in desks more and we're less active and all the things that, you know, encourage us to go and work on our fitness. And you were CMO at a really pivotal time for a business that is massive and has a lot kind of riding on it. And gyms, pretty kind of, you know, pretty obviously places that people go to to go to a class with each other. What did the pandemic mean for you? And how did you go about changing how you marketed and finding a new customer for for your products? Yeah, it it was a wild ride. So I'd been at Les Mills for about three years um, before I stepped into the CMO role in late 2019. So it wasn't like I just started with the business, but I definitely, you know, just stepped up into that that C-suite role. It was my very first role um, at that level. I was really still learning, trying to figure out what I was doing. And then all of a sudden, it's it's all on. Um, you know, amazing leadership from Clive, the CEO, and awesome foresight from uh, the CFO at the time, Doug, in, in that they, we could see what was happening in China in February. So we could see that gyms had started to close. We could see, you know, what was starting to happen. So we acted really early to the point where we asked staff to take a salary sacrifice in the middle of March. And this is, I guess, testament to Les Mills 
people is I had some of my teammates come to me and say, I'll take more than the requirement in terms of salary sacrifice because they really wanted to make sure the business would you know, stay successful. We asked suppliers for terms, extended terms, because um, we could just see our gym's partners really starting to struggle. Doors were closed. You know, it was hard for them to pay us. And it was all starting to look pretty tough. Uh, and then we looked over here at Les Mills Plus and it was going crazy. And, and what is Les Mills Plus? So Sorry. Les Mills Plus, formerly known as Les Mills On Demand, uh, is the online fitness app for consumers at home. So all of those consumers who were loving their Les Mills classes, the six million every week, doing it in gyms, now had discovered Les Mills uh, Plus and we'd worked with our club partners to say, here, give it to your members for, for free and we'd you know, given them all the kind of access to do that. Plus people just naturally were looking for everything to do at home, right? I remember when every department store was sold out of dumbbells and, you know, Peloton bikes were flying, flying out the door. Um, and, yeah, we just saw those numbers climb and climb and climb to the point where we were having a daily task force, 8 a.m. every morning. It's like a bit of PTSD talking about it now. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm sorry to yeah. kind of scratch those old scars. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, yeah. we did that. Um, and we would talk about, is the product going to last today? You know, like there were so many people jumping on this thing and we were just making sure all the tech was stable and people would have a great experience. Also, we were like, how much cash have we got? Because that's what I'll keep throwing into the marketing through social and digital to keep getting more subscribers on board. Um, and, yeah, it was it was insane. Uh, and then, you know, the marketing team as well, supporting all our clubs uh, with marketing material and, and, you know, communication to help them stay connected to their members. It was wild. Um, but it was a an amazing time in terms of bringing a group together. So that marketing team would have been about 80 people globally at that point. Um, and, you know, different markets had different priorities and we worked together on projects, but not always at the same time. And what I loved about that moment is everyone had the same goal. It was like, how do we make our gym partners successful? And how do we help more consumers work out, you know, at home and stay fit and healthy, as well as supporting our instructors through that too. So, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. Um, I think the business, you know, though it was tough, made better because of it. It went from a 90% B2B business to more when I left about 50-50 um, on a bigger pie as well. So one of those really massive success stories out the back of COVID where it makes you really understand your priorities, focus in on those, and then you actually see bigger opportunities and can grow off the back of that. Yeah, what an amazing thing to have been part of, of doing. And you know, one of my favourite things about Les Mills International is it's perhaps the biggest employer of musicians in the country, right? Like all of these workouts and all of these things, there'll be a licensed hit and then some sound alike and some music in between it and stuff. And it's just this massive entertainment beast that, that um, yeah, like like deserves all, 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 everyone to know how cool it is. Totally. Like when I discovered that, I was like, hold on, what? We record music? They're like, yeah, every single song on every single workout gets re-recorded as a cover by New Zealand artists. I was like, that's just phenomenal in terms of that machine. And it's that's what Les Mills is like. There's all these pockets of amazing people everywhere that it took me the whole six years to kind of figure out who's who and what are they doing and what magic's happening in that corner compared to that corner. And yeah, just amazing people. That's what really kept me there was just phenomenal people all around the globe loving what they do uh, and, you know, that purpose kind of driven work around making difference to people's lives. 
And we'll be back in a moment with Anna to talk the journey to Sticky Peak and changing customer insights for the better. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome back to Business is Boring. So what led you to Sticky Beak? And what does it do? It's a great, it's a great name. Yeah, it is a pretty fun name. Um, I love our kind of look and feel and branding too. It's um, part of what attracted me. But I actually tried it when I was at Les Mills. So we were launching a pretty big campaign in the US. And it comes to those moments where you're like either trying to chase a new market, trying to chase a new customer, and you get a little bit of those wobbles around, oh, is this quite right? There's quite a lot at stake here. Um, Or, you know, there's a bit at risk in terms of need to make sure we've got this right. Um, And so I was looking for consumer insights tools and found Sticky Beak. And I guess fell in love with it so much that uh, a few months later, I was there (laughs) as the CEO. Um, And... What I have brought into Sticky Beak is probably that marketing focus because I could just really see how helpful the platform could be for marketers and comms professionals. Um, and so we've been working really hard on that in terms of, um, you know, in terms of what Sticky Beak does. Sticky Beak just makes your job easier as a marketer. Is That's our goal. We want to make your decisions effortless and intuitive. And we do that by bringing you customer feedback from your target market. And that's feedback on things like your everyday marketing decisions, messaging, creative, ads, logos, taglines, uh, packaging. uh, We do for a lot of our FMCG clients. Um, And it's just to bring that customer feedback in because what you're probably doing, and I was doing this at Tourism New Zealand and Les Mills, is you'd ask the four people around the table what they thought. Maybe one of you was the target market if you were lucky. Um, And you'd make a call. And sometimes it was great, sometimes it wasn't, and away you went. And so what we're trying to do is make the customer be closer to that decision um, and, uh, yeah, get their input into those marketing calls. How do you go about doing that in a more engaging way? As I'm sure a bunch of people would have interacted with Sticky Beak by now by maybe answering a fun little ad off Instagram or something and then doing a little chat. Totally. Um, We have a very engaged New Zealand audience, actually, on social media. So that helps us because that's exactly what we do. We recruit respondents from social media. And you know what's happening on social media, right? You're swiping up, you're tapping, you're writing short little replies. And so we just dive straight into that behavior. And our platforms are super engaging. That's a massive focus for us is the UX of our respondent platforms and making it feel like you've 
you're still on social and you're having a bit of a chat with a friend or an acquaintance or mum and giving your feedback and, and making choices. And we believe that gives a truthier truth. It's not, you won't see a grey box, a radio button, you know, you're not click raging your way through a survey with Sticky Vig. You're actually having uh, an engaging conversation. Um, To the point where we've had feedback that some of them are too short because people were having such a good time, they wanted to keep answering them. Um, But yeah, it's short and sweet feedback. It's what you need to know this week. We're not about big quant surveys that last you a year or a quarter this is right. This week's decision is this, and I need some feedback from my customer. So, you know, let's go out and get that. How does that compare to traditional research that certainly isn't, I'm going to find something out this week? Like, where does it sit in terms of accessibility and speed? Yeah, that's uh, the massive opportunity, we think, is, you know, because a sticky beak test, you're talking about hundreds of dollars and you're talking about 48 hours to come back. So it's almost unimaginable for a lot of the, you know, customers we work with when we first engage with them because they're used to minimum six, eight week long engagements, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. um, And you only kind of save it for your biggest and bestest work. Whereas we're saying, you know, you can do that. That's awesome. And focus groups have their place and all the research has their place. But what we're helping you with is making better everyday decisions. Um, and, it's, you know, it's more substituting that meeting room table hooey um, versus, you know, substituting your big annual quant project. You might still need that for thought leadership insights or whatever you're doing. But this is, yeah, working in a completely different way in terms of speed and cost to get you feedback. And for lots of organisations that are meant to be very much about the customer, oftentimes from having worked a lot in uh, design, advertising and marketing and brand and comms and all the rest of it, it seems that normally when people go to test something, it's when they want to get someone to tell them that they like the thing that they've already decided, not actually to find out kind of new information or how things could change. Oh, I, yeah, 100%. And um, like I, I've done it myself as a marketer. Like you fall in love with the concept and then the film gets made and, and you're just, that's what you want to do. Um, and then someone says, we should test it. And you're like, oh, um. <laughs> and then at this point, you're you're done. Your production's done. You've spent your money and and that you're just crossing everything that that video is going to come through testing okay. And I've never loved that. Um, and, and so what we tend to encourage our customers to do is instead of testing and eating the cake to see if the cake is tasty, Test your ingredients. Make sure you've got the best butter and chocolate, you know, all your messages and your imagery style and your your concept itself. Test that. Make a beautiful brief that an agency or, you know, your creative team can pick up and just nail because that brief is clear. It's on point. It's exactly what the customer wants. And so then the, the thing at the end, it's just bound to be beautiful because you've actually got the work right up front. Um, and that feels a less scary place, I think, for people. I think it's a more useful place to kind of get the building blocks right versus, you know, test this thing that everyone's put their heart and soul into at the end. Um, And you're more open, I think, to what those kind of options might be. We had actually a really awesome um, concept test come in recently from a brand and they were trying to reach a new audience, which is often a trigger point um, to do some testing. 
and they had four concepts. And I said, look, you can test up to five and I really encourage you to go back to your creative team and just get them to think wild for the fifth because this is testing. You can do that in this space. And they came up with a really cool fifth concept. It tested okay. It wasn't the best, but it was a nice way for them to just play with the edges, you know, and see where they could pull the brand and the creative positioning to that particular new customer without doing that out in the wild and making, you know, an awful mistake that then is a social media nightmare or, you know, a spend that's gone wrong. Who's using it as it's homegrown and there's like local people, but there's some pretty big organisations around the world as it is all like online and, you know, largely, is it self-service in, in many instances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's phenomenal, the, the client base. So um, there's foundational clients like Dole uh, out of Singapore, SC Johnson out of Wisconsin, and that kind of got us into the FMCG space. Um, but then also, yeah, New Zealand brands, Tasty, Dairy Works, um, you know, lots of amazing New Zealand brands coming on board, especially now that we've got the the consumer testing proposition. That's something that, you know, going into Australia or maybe a big moment in New Zealand that they're, you know, being able to pick up and, and, and use the platform to help them make their marketing decisions. The one client that I absolutely love and is just phenomenal is the World Health Organization. Um, wildly different from that FMCG sector, but really similar in terms of the needs and what they're doing. So what they do with Sticky Beak is message testing. It started off with two years, basically, of message testing around COVID-19, um, you know, vaccines, preventative measures, all the kind of, you know, ways that in that they were trying to encourage people uh, to keep, you know, getting vaccinated and, and keeping up those measures. And the nice thing about because we're connected with social media, we can reach people everywhere. So women in Afghanistan, like literally we just surveyed into the DRC, um, all through South America and Africa and Europe. And, um, you know, those are the populations that they often have found hard to get feedback from and really understand what is the best health messaging that can motivate these people to take action. Uh, so now it's moved into uh, other health uh, issues, including things recently like the Turkey earthquake, um, the, the flooding in Libya recently, where we're just helping kind of get the right messages at the right time based on what we're hearing from uh, that consumer feedback. That's so cool. Because often a question in communications when you're dealing with an audience, right, is now are people understanding this? And you can as a professional think that it's very clear and then find out that it's not actually clear at all. And so that's so great to be able to check in and and actually get feedback from people around not do you like this, but do you get this? Or is this a way that you understand this information? Totally. And is it motivating to take action? Like that's the big thing they're trying to work towards is, you know, they don't want any fear-based messaging around health. So how do you make it really kind of positive and give people hope and, you know, want to take action um, versus being scared and, and sort of feeling like they're forced to take action. It's really at the heart of what they do. Um, that's what's been so impressive as well as all around the globe, the different teams we're working with, they really get the power of message testing uh, and how it can help not only that technical piece, so alongside a communications officer will be a technical officer, and they're sort of trying to make sure the language is technically correct as well as understood um, and, you know, relevant uh, to that particular audience. So there's, it's a really tough job they've got internally, 
And then the message testing, I guess, helps them kind of get confidence around the right way in um, or, you know, go back and, and have another think. You came into this role from being a CMO, a Chief Marketing Officer, and that's something that in tech platform product high growth companies, it's not super common. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, obviously, in this instance, being a tool for marketers and communicators, right? But like, that's something you see a lot more of overseas with CMOs becoming leaders. And that's also something you had at Les Mills, hey, with um, Clive being an, an ex-CMO, right? Tell us about that as um, that's something that I as a marketing kind of brandy, advertising type person think is very interesting. And those skills of being a communicator, understanding your customer, um, delivering to metrics of a CMO seem to me to be kind of the ideal things for a CEO. And I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> no, though, to be honest, it wasn't something I had strived for. And I, I try and post-rationalise that now and wonder why not. I think it was a little bit of if you can't see it, you can't be it. And like to your point, it's not a very common thing that you do see. Um I I just had some phenomenal, all the, the, the Sticky Beak founders are phenomenal and just had such encouragement and support from them that I, you know, when I'm at my best and I'm in an environment that's making sure that I'm having fun, I've got connection and I'm on an adventure, then I will take those big leaps and steps. Uh, and that was kind of that big leap and step into the CEO role. But I, I couldn't agree more in terms of the skill set that a marketer has. Like marketing these days is so wide. You have to understand digital platforms and marketing automation and even get into a bit of like tech itself. But then you have to go all the way to brand and messaging and, you know, emotional response to things. And then the other kind of customer insights and bits and pieces that all fit in around that. And that's one role. It's, you know, it's, this is um, being mean to colleagues, but it's not just finance, you know, it's like this huge beast um, of, of, you know, different functions and things that you're working on. And it's the little engine that feeds the sales organisation, that feeds, you know, all that, that, that tells the product stories, that does all these things. It seems to me to be, you know, a, a place where there could be more leaders being, being um, you know, found from that area. And I think it's probably a sign of maturity in a scene that you see more of that in a tech and um, a high growth ecosystem where maybe there's been, you know, scepticism as, you know, someone again working in the brand space, sometimes you find a little bit of scepticism from people who haven't got backgrounds or experience with marketing through to downright cynicism. Yeah, 100%. And that's, you sometimes see a CRO role that kind of goes into to bridge that gap to be a sales and marketing um kind of, you know, responsibility. But yeah, it's once people understand the power of brand, um, I was really just had the privilege of going to uh, the States with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. And we had this phenomenal presentation from an absolute brand expert. And he kind of talked about this idea of all value being perceived value. And perceived value comes from the power of, of your brand and, you know, kind of what you stand for, who you are. And I was with a lot of New Zealand leaders, including tech leaders in the room. And you could kind of almost feel this penny drop in the room around the powerfulness of brand. It's not look and feel. It's not your logo. Mm -hmm. It's this, you know, it's this bigger positioning and, and value driver um, that is quite intangible 
um, which makes it hard to to for very rational tech brains to get their heads around. Um, but does you know can make a massive difference to the value, like literally the valuation of the brand and, and the company. You've also been involved in governance roles and and coming to an organisation as a marketing and brand and you know, you know d- design and communication expert. Tell us about that as if you look at, and this is something that I'm, I'm involved in a project getting some research on this, the number of companies in the tech and growth ecosystem that have any kind of marketing, brand, design, uh, governance, representation, uh, it is vanishingly small. Tell us about the value of those disciplines and that experience in governance. Well, it's exactly to your point. It, it's such a broad skill set. So you're bringing in quite a kind of, you know, multi-talented Swiss Army knife type person when you're bringing in a marketer, but also having someone who can be really strong on comms and, and you know, not necessarily doing, but advising around um, whether that's around crisis or whether that's around kind of really making sure they're leveraging the right things for the business right now. Because lots of either, you know, all sorts of businesses actually, it's not just a small business thing. Prioritisation is tough and focusing on the right things and and a lot of that is about getting the messaging right internally um, as well as externally. So, you know, having that multifunction brain but also just a, a different um, way of thinking and, um, you know, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that you've got to have a diversity in a group, you know, whether it's a board or whatever. And I don't mean gender and race and that. I mean the way people think and the way they operate and the, the backgrounds they come from and, and the life they've lived. And, you know, all of that, I think, makes a huge difference to making sure that a board is successful. And I, so I joined the Gulf New Zealand board and I believe they were looking for a marketing role, um, but they hadn't had one on the board previously, I don't think. Um, and and they are a huge marketing engine mm. in terms of what they do. Their job is to increase participation. And so, you know, having that that uh, skill set uh, on the board and having that focus as a board, I think, is, is pretty cool. And that, well, I mean, Golf, Golf New Zealand's a great example of something that's worked really hard to, you know, go against any preconceptions that it's like a old white retiree thing or something, right? A lot of energy, a lot of youth programs, and you really see that in the way that it hits the world. But I kind of think, and I've, you know, um, you mentioned diversity, definitely seeing that there is vanishingly small representation of marketing brand design experience on boards. That's definitely diversity of opinion and experience that, you know, every business has a customer to find and a story to tell. You know, it doesn't matter how business to business you are, it really does. But also diversity in that there are so many great experienced leaders in design, brand and marketing who are women, who could immediately jump onto so many boards right now and bring you a double whammy of um, diversity. I couldn't agree more. And there are like, you know, especially, God, dare I say it, women my age, um, who have amazing experience, both, you know, job and life, um, who can bring so much uh, value to a board. And you're right, a lot of them are in marketing and comms um, and they, you know, they would love that experience. I think Sport New Zealand's doing a great job with this in terms of making sure that all the NGOs have a diverse board in terms of gender uh, and that's providing opportunities. But I think the the business world can can do better. 
what advice would you have for people who are wanting to, you know, get in and and be leaders and drive, you know, great projects and companies uh, and, and, and build a career like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I tried to boil it down to something simple um, and that ended up uh, being kind of the statement, be curious. So um, curiosity has somehow sometimes landed me in roles that have been terrible <laughs> <laughs> and I've made the wrong call, but you just quickly exit your way out of that. Um, and I have a saying um, that I remind myself a lot, it's about the right thing right now. And I'm sure when I accepted those roles, like one of them, I was on holiday in Greece. I was coming back to New Zealand. I knew I wanted a job to, you know, to come home to. That would be a very safe, secure thing to do because I was on my last Euros. Um, I got in there and I realised it was awful. (laughs) And um, I kind of, you know, realised that, quickly then looked for something else and moved on. But it was the right thing right now in terms of kind of coming home. But, yeah, curiosity um, in terms of whether that's, you know, meeting new people, um, I would really encourage people to go and have a coffee with that person in the area of the business that you have no idea how it works. You kind of know they do some data stuff or you know you do, they do some stuff over here, but go and have a coffee and learn some more. A project might spin up where they then understand what you do and the value you can bring that you might be able to be part of. You know, put your hand up for opportunities, Um you know, I, I say all this like I've done it my whole life. I had a massive imposter syndrome at Les Mills and I didn't put my hand up for the CMO role when it first came up and it took quite a bit of um, work to get me to, to to put myself forward for that role and to go through the process. Um, but, yeah, I would just always keep encouraging people to be curious and, um, you know, just keep seeking out different opportunities and ideas and thoughts from others. That's so interesting that you didn't put yourself forward in a role that you thrived in and nailed, right? And you see all the data about guys applying for jobs they're not nearly qualified enough for and women not applying for jobs they're overqualified for because they believe they're underqualified. And this is, you know, there's a lot of data around these um, the, 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 these kind of uh, occurrences. Um, yeah, what have, yeah, what have you learned out of the back of that? And do you tell people... Just jump in with both feet and back yourself? Or what do you do to try and counter a cultural uh, headwind like that? Yeah, I think there's two sides to the coin. So one is, yes, you personally, you know, jump in. Really easy to say, sometimes really hard to do. I think on the other side, though, um, leaders can do a better job of what we've ended up coining a short handhold. So the... The, maybe the typical kind of um, approach to someone looking to apply for a job might be, you know, it's going to be really tough. It's a big step up. Are you ready for this? You know, it's, it's a it's a big big job. And I responded to that by going, "Oh, I'm not being supported. Okay, they don't think I can do it. So that's cool. I'll take the hint." Whereas another person might go, "Yeah, I am. Of course, I am. I can step up to that. I'll show you." And so my response to that was, uh, oh, okay, not not right for me. Instead, if it, the conversation had been, hey, you know this is going to be a big step from where you are now, but I've got you and I know you can do it and I'll support you, but you have to drive it. This is your opportunity, but I'm here. So just reach out when you need me and, you know, that short handhold essentially. Um, I think that can happen more. 
um, as a as a different approach. And maybe as a leader, if you try the, you know, you'll know your person, right? You'll know which one of those approaches might be best for them. But often only one of those approaches has has come forward. And so maybe it's about trying the other one to see if that then sparks the fire in the person that you can see some potential in to then step up and encourage that that next role. I love that. That's such a great concept. And as a final thought, what will success be for you and for Sticky Peak? Yeah, great question. Uh, world domination. Um, no, like for me personally, those conditions of having fun, feeling connection and being on an adventure uh, and for Sticky Beak, you know, I really truly believe we can m- make a difference in marketing. We can make marketing be a stronger, more respected, revenue-driving part of the business and ultimately more CMOs becoming CEOs, right? Like this is about the big the big one. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's about just helping, supporting, encouraging marketing, making marketing have a, a bigger seat at the table. Yeah, love it. Hey, thank you so much for the chat today and can't wait to see where you take this next. That's Anna Henwood, CEO at Sticky Peak. Kia ora. Kia ora. So thank you to Anna, to you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.